0: John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. What's the point? As John announces that the Lord is coming, what's his point? What's his message to those who are interested, want to know about this Lord? Now, we've been, uh, up to this point, all last year we studied salvation history, the overview of the Old Testament. I want to show you, first of all, that this is connected with the promises from the Old Testament. The Old Testament ended on a note of discouragement, but on a note of hope. Discouragement about the present. Their lives weren't what they were supposed to be. They were an occupied country. They were stumbling in their relationship with God. And a note of hope about what the future would be. Now, Matthew here quotes Isaiah. Here's the passage from Isaiah, broader context. God says, through Isaiah, to the people. Comfort, comfort my people. Take heart, says the Lord. "Speak Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. Here's the promise that John is recalling as he announces Jesus. The promise he's recalling is that the hope of all mankind is coming. The hope of all history is coming. All this frustration and discouragement that Israel faced throughout its history, the ups and downs in its relationship with God, and the ups and downs in its entire political and economic situation, the hopes and dreams of all these years are going to be fulfilled in this one who's coming. The one that God had promised was about to arrive. And just like when the Pope prepares to come to the U.S., they must prepare Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And how are they to prepare? The kingdom of heaven is about to come because the king of heaven is about to come into the midst. How are they to prepare? They're to get ready. They're to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Just like Washington, D.C., New York City, and Philadelphia prepare to meet the Pope, he says, We must prepare to meet Jesus. Jesus is the Lord promised in Isaiah. Through him, the kingdom of heaven comes. And he calls them to prepare. Get ready, he says. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. And we see the masses of people take his word to heart. People went out to John the Baptist from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan Confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So how did they respond? They were told, repent. And how did they respond? They confessed their sins. They were baptized. Two sins run throughout Israel's entire history. The sins of failing to worship God alone. And the sins of failing to obey him. And as John came and said, look, the king is coming. Get ready. They came. They got ready. By repenting and confessing their sins. And then John addresses. Oh, I Then John addresses a second group, of the religious elite. Notice how his message to them is stronger, harsher. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these were the religious leaders in the first century, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John speaks, first of all, to the masses of people. And he invites them to come. They're already burdened with a sense of their inadequacy, with a sense of their guilt. And he invites them to come. All they need to do is repent. An open invitation. A warm invitation. Jesus also speaks to those with religious pedigree, with a long religious history with visible religious positions. And his message to them is sterner. Because they have this position, this authority, this long religious history. And he calls them to something mm, a, a bit different. Or he calls them to the same thing in a different way. Because now repentance is not merely confessing sins as the people did. Repentance is broader than that. He calls them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. For those who have never come to faith in Christ, for those who have never submitted their lives to God, for those who are aware of their hmm, puniness before his majesty, of their corruption before his holiness, for those who have never come to faith and recognize the inadequacies of their own religious life, John the Baptist says these words, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. For those with a long formal religious history who've never actually personally submitted to Christ, John the Baptist comes with a different message. Flee the wrath to come, produce fruit in keeping repentance. You see, he's making the distinction this. Repentance is when we submit to God, when we confess our inadequacy before him, when we throw ourselves on his mercy. That's repentance. And from repentance comes life change. We live differently now. And so he calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who put a lot of effort into following rules and regulations. They put a lot of effort into being outwardly compliant. He calls to them and says, this is, this is not enough. You need to bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. You need to worship God. and you worship God alone, you need to serve him and serve him alone. It's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to be spiritual. We've got to live in submission and worship of Jesus. They said, we have Abraham as our father. We've been loyal Jews all our lives. It's not enough to be affiliated with formal religion whether Christianity or Judaism, it says bring forth food in keeping your, with your repentance. Their repentance is to bring changed lives. And if it doesn't, then they face these two choices, these two options. Salvation for those who put their faith in Christ and live for him. Wrath for those who don't. And then finally, in the last passage, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist again announces Jesus. Verses 11 and 12. I baptized you with water for repentance. But now he explains something else about Jesus. Someone comes after me who's more powerful than I, John says. Now in his day, John was famous. Far more famous in his day than Jesus was at this point. John says, after me comes someone who's even more important than I am. He's more powerful than I am. His sandals, he's more holy than I am. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chafe with unquenchable fire. Notice again the point here. I baptize you with water for repentance. Again, the urge, the way to prepare for Jesus' coming is through repentance. It was the message he started with. It's how the initial group of people responded, the masses of people. It's what he demanded of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious elite. And now he comes back to that same point. I baptized you with water for repentance. But something else is happening something more hopeful. When we talk about sin and we talk about repentance, we can end up beating ourselves up with this. But, but John holds out a, 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 a greater hope. John's message is stern, but he says, Then is coming Jesus. I baptized you with water for repentance. After me comes someone more powerful than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We need to spend a little bit of time thinking about this phrase. Now, I recognize that there's, you can divide this congregation into two groups. Some of you will have a long term background in Christianity, and some of you won't. Now, as Terry mentioned in his prayer, this is fall, autumn, you know, and yesterday we had a group of people come over our house that had been apple picking. So if you don't have much background in Christianity, and you've never heard this phrase, baptized in the Spirit, feel free to go on a mental voyage in your brain here for five minutes. Think about a time you went apple picking, and the sun was bright, and the weather was crisp and the apples were fresh, and you eat in the orchard, you go back home, and there's the smell of apple cider. Take a little mind-wandering in your journey if you have never heard the phrase, baptizing the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you with background, and have heard the phrase, let's talk a little bit. And the rest of you, I'll come back to you in a minute. Or, no, I'll come back to you in five minutes. There's been a lot of distraction about baptizing the Holy Spirit, this phrase, that really causes us to miss John's point. And it's an important point. Because what has happened so far, all John has said is, repent. And then the crowd comes and he says, repent, and the crowd repents. And then the religious leaders come and and he says, repent, or else you're going to face judgment. And all he's ever done so far is, hit him. Your sinners repent, your sinners repent, your sinners repent. But that's not all that he talks about. And there's something very upbeat going on in this next phrase that we overlook because we get distracted by the meaning of the phrase or the use of the phrase today. Now, I want to make hmm, five points, hopefully a minute each, so I can go back to the other group in a minute. If you're familiar with this, first of all, the first point I want to make is, look, we want to distinguish between experience, interpretation of the experience, and the language we use to describe our interpretation of that experience. All right. I'm not at all going to talk about experience today. Some people have had a perfectly legitimate experience of God that they call baptizing the Holy Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. They've had a perfectly legitimate experience. That's fine. Okay. Good experience. Interpretation. Then people overlay an interpretation on that experience, which is sometimes okay and sometimes dubious. Then language to describe that experience and that interpretation of that experience. The language is quite simply, quite clearly wrong. Wrong. We shouldn't be using this phrase to describe that good experience and that possibly good interpretation. We should not use this language because we confuse ourselves. Secondly, to support that first point, you can look throughout the Bible. Our common phrase is baptism in the Holy Spirit. That language does not appear in Scripture. There is no noun, baptism in the Holy Spirit, no noun phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's only a verb phrase, baptized in the Holy Spirit. And here's why it makes a difference. It's not quibbling over little details, noun, verb. Here's why it makes a difference. There is no such thing as a baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, The New Testament never tried to say that there was such a thing as a baptism in the Holy Spirit. For 200 years, we've been talking about baptism in the Holy Spirit. But there is no such thing. The New Testament never said there was. It never uses the phrase, baptism in the Holy Spirit, Old Testament, New Testament. None of it ever uses the phrase, baptism. We invented it. You know, like a couple hundred years ago, maybe 250 years ago, people invented this phrase. So that they could use it to describe their interpretation of their experience. And the experience, again, may be valid. No, no. The experience is often valid. The interpretation may be valid. The language is invalid. What was John really trying to say? What we've done is we've reified a metaphor. And I gave you the words so you you know, reify a metaphor. Let me tell you what happens when you reify a metaphor. Let me give you a metaphor we know is not concrete. You know in the Bible when it says the arm of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save? How many people think God has arms? You know, God's spirit, right? No arms. We need arms. God creates, how did God create the world? He didn't use his arms and his hands. How did God create the world? He breathed. Just breath. Now, how many of us think God has lungs? Well, you know, this is all metaphor. Right? It's all metaphor. You, you don't start reifying it. You don't make it concrete. You, oh, oh, now what's the arm of the Lord? And where do, you know... How many arms does the Lord have? You know, one of the Hindu gods has dozens of arms. Right? How many arms does God... Well, you don't do that. John is using a metaphor. You've got to ask, what's the point of the metaphor? You don't reify it. You don't invent something new and say, okay, this is what it is. You ask, what's the point of the metaphor? And here's a couple of points to the metaphor. What we have to do is, John, is the, John says to the crowd, look, I'm doing something with water. Jesus is going to do something with the Spirit. Right? So now we've got to compare the two. What's John do with water? All right, first of all, notice, he uses the river. He doesn't just want a cup of water. He wants a whole river of water. So the first thing he's saying about Jesus, he's not just going to give you a cup of the spirit. He's going to give you a river full of spirit. And then, what else does John say about it? I baptize you with water for repentance, as a symbol of repentance. Well, you know what? If you look in the Old Testament, if you look in Ezekiel 37, if you look in Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 31, particularly Ezekiel 37, what does the spirit do? God's people have spent their entire history ignoring him, disrespecting him, disobeying him. And Ezekiel says, there is no hope for these people. They're going into exile. God is fed up. God is done. He's finished. He will take no more. They're going to die. Their children are going to die. Their spouses are going to die. They're going to get taken into exile. But, but in the future, Ezekiel 37 when these people are scattered in exile, like dead bones in the desert, bleached by the sun, God's going to send his spirit, his wind, his breath. God's going to send spirit, wind, breath. Same word in Hebrew. Same word in Greek. Interpreted either, anyway, depending on what, what the context is. God's going to send his spirit. And those bones are going to be pulled together into a full body again and then God's going to breathe his breath, his spirit, into those bones, and then come to life. come to life. God says, look, my nation looks like it's decimated. It's destroyed because I did it, because of their sin. But God says, a day is coming when I'm going to reconstitute that nation, and I'm going to bring them back to the land. And now they will worship me. Now they will obey me, because they'll have my spirit in them. God says, it's not that I will tell them to repent, because they didn't listen to me. God says, now I will put my spirit, my life force, into them, and they will repent. It's not a command to change. It's a promise. That Jesus won't come like the law did and said, change, change, change. And that made no difference. It's a promise that Jesus will come with the Spirit and put his Spirit within us to change us from the inside. That's the point of the metaphor. And its background is Ezekiel 37. God will, Jesus will recreate people, recreate us from the inside out. So that now we don't need John the Baptist to tell us repent and bring forth fruit of repentance. Because now, because God transforms us and breaks our, our, our heart, God transforms our stubborn spirit with his Holy Spirit. So now we do repent and we do bring forth fruit in keeping with our repentance. This is the promise, not that we must solve our problem but that Jesus, when he comes, he will solve our problem. John the Baptist has three times said, repent, repent, repent. And now this fourth time, he says, all I can do is tell you to repent. But somebody's coming. Jesus. He will transform you so that you do repent, so that you do live for God. This is the hope of John the Baptist's message. And this is the hope that we have as Christians. Now, pulling it all together, the coherence. Throughout here, there's a coherence. 3, 1 to 4, what's the message? John the Baptist says, repent. 3, 5 to 6, what do the masses do? They repent. 3, 7 to 10, what must the religious lead to? They must repent. What do you think the point of this section is? Uh, The spirit effects repentance. The whole point of all these four paragraphs, the point of this section is, we must repent, is the point of the first three. But the point of the fourth is this. We can, now, as God touches our lives, we can now, for the first time, effectively repent. What Israel struggled and failed to do, we can do. Now, how does all that apply to us? How does it fit into our lives? First of all, to give us a, re-understanding, a new understanding of Israel's salvation history. Remember last week we talked about Hanukkah and Judas Maccabeus? And what Israel was looking for was the deliverer. They were looking for God to send them some powerful king, the son of God, who would challenge the emperor, challenge the politics of the situation, as Judas Maccabeus had done, who would conquer the Romans, as Judas Maccabeus had conquered the Greeks, and bring them political independence. John the Baptist says, Our problem is not political. Our problem is not to be solved by a king. John the Baptist is saying our problem is spiritual. We need to repent. And the one who can liberate us is the one who can change us so that we can repent. John overturns the whole thrust of Jewish expectations based on salvation history. They don't need a new David, they don't need a new Moses, they need Jesus who can change them, not from the outside in their political structures, but from the inside in their heart for God. The second point John makes is that we now, for the first time, really have help with the solution. It's not just, the gospel is not just Jesus dying for our sins on the cross. The gospel is also Jesus giving us the spirit so that we can now obey and worship God. And finally, there's implications for how we come to Jesus today. If you have never come to Jesus, this John the Baptist message is the same today as it was in his day. If you have never come to Jesus, his message is that God calls us to worship him as God. God calls us to serve him as Lord in our lives. And there is a time when Jesus will be coming again and hold us accountable for whether we worship or whether we serve. So John's message to newcomers is the same today as it was in his day. Turn from your self-centered, self-directed lives. Turn toward God, toward God-directed life, God-centered life. John's message is different for long-termers, for those who have already given their lives to Christ. John's message to us is not one of exhortation and admonition. John's message to us is one of hope. Jesus doesn't come to make us feel guilty. Jesus comes to alleviate our feelings of guilt. Jesus doesn't come simply to forgive our sins. Jesus comes to transform us so that we turn from our sins, not because we must, but because we can. This is the promise of the gospel, that for the first time, we have the Spirit within us who empowers us to love and serve God alone. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray. That John's promise and Jesus' role be what characterize our lives. That we will put you first in our worship and put you first in our lives. Empower us by this spirit who lives within. For Jesus' sake and for our own, we ask in his name. Amen.